Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Amwad Deterrence Center. Our host is Dr. Adam Laufel, co-founder and vice president for research at the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. The Amwad Deterrence Center is a 501c3 organization ensuring a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrence and its ongoing modernization. Thank you for listening and welcome to the show. The views of the host and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another great episode of NucleCast. Of course, as always, I am Adam Lowther, and today we have a great guest, Dr. Jim Howe, who uh, joined us about a year or so ago. And Jim is a consultant in the space industry, and he's, of course, a retired Coast Guard captain and has spent much of the last 15 years working on uh, you know the the nuclear the non-military nuclear side on reactors and he recently has uh you know written his dissertation so congratulations on that and and he's working on this idea of nuclear rockets and nuclear engines to propel spacecraft and which is the topic we've never discussed so I wanted to have Jim back to talk about that. So Jim, welcome back to NucleCast. Thanks very much. It's uh, it's truly incredible how much the U.S. has invested in nuclear power and propulsion systems for space, yet we've never operationalized it. It's a pretty amazing history going back 70 years. So you mentioned the history, and that was going to be one of my first questions, because for I, I remember reading, uh, and I was reading... Uh, about uh, space for the sake of, you know, I think I was reading about um, Elon Musk and and there was this reference to nuclear propulsion that, and I just was like, wait, what is it? What? We've already, you know, 50 years ago or 60 years ago, we're thinking about nuclear propulsion in space. And I sort of just left it to the side, but could you, give our listeners sort of a a synopsis of the history of nuclear propulsion in space? Uh, Sure thing. So there's actually been three major programs for this going all the way back to the 1950s. And two of them were tied directly to our strategic deterrent. Uh, The first one was a, a program called Project Rover. It started in 1955, ran all the way through 1973, 18 years spent in then year dollars about 1.4 billion uh, which is about 13 billion in, in current year dollars and was an, uh, originally kicked off as a backup system nuclear propulsion for the Atlas rocket program if you recall from 1945 through all the way through 1959 our nuclear triad only had one leg it was just strategic bombing and so there was a lot of word coming out of uh, the Soviet Union through uh, intel sources that said that they were working on long-range missiles. And the fear uh, early in the Eisenhower administration was that the Russians could, or the Soviets could, you know, attack us, you know, without any warning using long-range ICBMs, which the U.S. did not have at that time. Uh, so we uh, commenced a crash program called Atlas. They'd been working on this for many years, but kind of at a very low level of activity. Uh, President Eisenhower in 1955 made it the top R&D priority for the U.S. forces. It became the most expensive military development program in U.S. history at that point. And they were having a lot of trouble with their chemical rockets. Uh, They were blowing up is what it 
came to be. So the first several, you know, tests all kind of didn't go anywhere and they had problems. And so as a backup, they decided to go with a, um, a nuclear upper stage for a rocket to just kind of always have a backup system in, in case the original one didn't work, the chemical rockets. By about 1957, we'd figured out that the chemical rockets were going to work just fine. They had really miniaturized a lot of the warheads, so you didn't need as much thrust and as much power. And so the uh, the Project Rover started to decline. But then in October of that year, you had Sputnik. And Sputnik really sent us into a lather. You know, how could these Soviets be so far ahead of us? You had Sputnik 2 a couple of weeks later. And then just over the next several years, you had a bunch of successes by the Soviets where they were beating us in space. And it went from being a, uh, a part of the Atlas missile program really to being more of what can we do to best the Soviets in space? Uh, if you recall, when President Kennedy in May of 1961, he made his famous speech to Congress about urgent national priorities. And he spoke for about eight minutes about the space program. And he talked mostly about going to the moon. He also spoke about three other things. One is telecommunication satellites, uh, weather satellites, and accelerating Project Rover. So the President of the United States stood and talked to the entire nation about the need to accelerate Project Rover uh, for kind of undefined reasons. They didn't have a mission for it. They didn't need it for going to the moon. They were going to use the, uh, the Saturn rockets. But they thought it was a way to best the Soviets. And so for the next couple of years, it kept getting more and more money to the point where it was about $180 million a year in then-year dollars, which is you know well over a billion a year in today's dollars. And then it just slowly faded as President Johnson took over after the assassination of, of Kennedy and other priorities you know, came to the forefront. You just saw the, the, the funding every year just kind of slowly degraded. And um, early in his second term, uh, President Nixon killed it, just didn't see a need for, for the nuclear rocket anymore. Um, so that was the first of three programs. The second one, very briefly, was called Timberwind. It was a super secret program under the uh, Strategic Defense Initiative. And this was to take a particle bed nuclear rocket as an interceptor missile to knock down the Soviet ICBMs before they got into their uh, glide phase. And then the, that, that program lasts about six years. Uh, it didn't get too far technologically. They were having some problems with the fuel. And then in the early 2000s, there was a totally non-defense related program called Prometheus, which was a fascinating idea of sending a nuclear electric propulsion spacecraft, a robotic spacecraft to the icy moons of Jupiter, again, using nuclear power to, to provide ion thrust. So you could really, by orders of magnitude, increase the scientific payload of that and bring back years and years worth of scientific discoveries rather than just a flyby or a couple of orbits like you do with a chemical propulsion. So those three programs in total, probably 20 billion in current year dollars, but we've never fielded an operational asset. So it's a kind of a, a unique political history to look at. So is this idea of nuclear propulsion for spacecraft, is it taking off again? Is it, I, I know with, as we think about, uh, nuclear energy and this idea that we're going to move to a uh, you know clean energy. People are coming to the realization: hey, nuclear energy has to be a part of it. We we you know wind and solar can't do it all. Is there sort of a similar realization that hey we we really need to think about nuclear propulsion for spacecraft for rockets for you know if we want to travel beyond you know, Earth's atmosphere, that this is going to have to be part of what we do? Or is it still sort of nascent in the early stages? 
It is really taken off in the last five years. Um, you know, pre-COVID, there was a push starting with NASA. They wanted to to kind of look at this situation again and see if they could develop a nuclear thermal propulsion rocket, maybe for a future Mars mission or whatever. The Congress really embraced it, surprisingly, and they threw about $150 million at it. And the um, the administration actually didn't spend all that money. They had to get keep keep getting pressured by Congress. But since then, you've had a couple of developments that are really quite quite interesting. One is a program called Draco, Demonstration Rocket for Agile Cislunar Operations. That's a DARPA project over at the De- Defense Department. And what they're looking at is a small and nimble spacecraft that would be powered by nuclear thermal propulsion that could change orbits and inclinations easily, have a lot more kind of oomph to it than uh, chemical rockets. They have then, uh, at DARPA, have merged kind of their programs with with uh, NASA's. So the two agencies are now working together on the first Draco demonstration rocket, which is supposed to be on orbit by about 2027. Now, granted, that's a very small demonstration rocket. It's not going to be able to do a whole lot. It's not going to be able to go very far in space uh, for the sort of payloads you would need, say, to get to Mars. But maybe it's something that they could scale up then in the future. I I will tell you that what they're doing in Draco would require quite a bit of money to scale it up to, to NASA size, you know, for, for a manned or a crewed expedition to, to Mars or elsewhere. But at least you would have the first operational on-orbit, you know, asset up there doing this. We've never done a nuclear rocket in space. Can you sort of walk us through what that looks like? What does a nuclear rocket look like? What does it do? How does it do it? Give us a, you know, sort of a layman's view of what that is. And and then, of course, you know, how safe are they? Because safety is always a top concern. Walk us through that. Sure. So there's two types of proposed nuclear rockets. Uh, the first and most, uh, the one that people talk about the most is nuclear thermal propulsion, where it's, it's a pretty simple system, actually. You have a very compact and high heat reactor. And all you do is you flow a stream of hydrogen through it. And it's liquid hydrogen, super chilled. And as it goes through, it goes from like negative 400 degrees Fahrenheit to probably about roughly 4,000 degrees Fahrenheit. That that rapid expansion uh, gets shot out the back through a nozzle, and that's your thrust. So it's, it's a pretty straight straightforward system. Uh, the second system that people are looking at is called nuclear electric propulsion, where you basically take a reactor that would drive... A, uh, a power converter that then shoots ions of, say, xenon out the back of the thrusters. Now, the problem is that's a very low thrust system, but it's extremely efficient. In fact, the efficiency is about an order of magnitude higher than what you get through nuclear thermal propulsion. So for a robotic mission where time is not that important and you don't need a lot of immediate thrust, that's a great way to have a very long duration mission where you can just kind of go like they wanted to do back in uh, uh, the early 2000s, where they wanted to go and spend six years exploring the moons of Jupiter rather than doing a couple of months or a couple of maybe a year or something using chemical propulsion. So those are the two basic basic ways you can uh, use nuclear to uh, propel a spacecraft. So would the former get you out of the atmosphere, but the latter would need, you know, a traditional either liquid fueled rocket to get it out of the atmosphere and then you know that nuclear propulsion kicks in is walk me through that right you're correct nuclear electric propulsion won't have the thrust to to get you out of the atmosphere so you'd have to launch it 
you know, on a traditional uh, chemical rocket, put it in orbit, you know, commission it up there and then send it on its way. You could use nuclear thermal, thermal propulsion to launch from Earth, but most likely that will not be the uh, the operational mindset. Uh, you're, you're probably going to have an upper stage that's nuclear and just launch it on chemical rockets, get it on orbit, and then activate the reactor. That really mitigates your safety concerns, makes it a lot more palatable, I think, to the public, to the environmental community, because uh, you're not doing anything nuclear while you're in the launch phase. You, you're going to get it up there in on a safe orbit, and then you're going to activate the reactor. So where are we in terms of, I mean, you mentioned Draco, but are we still sort of in these nascent stages where there's a few guys like you that are sort of talking about it? Maybe some guys at, you know, in DARPA or NASA that are, you know, have aspirational goals or is there like real movement towards this? Uh, you know, are are you sort of one of the very few thinkers on this? Uh, where are we? Cause it's not a topic I hear much about. Right. It- It's actually become, uh, I think, a very viable program uh, where five years ago when NASA was thinking about maybe for a Mars expedition, you'd need to develop this technology. Okay, that's one thing. Note that there is no funding for a Mars expedition. No one's kind of really laid out how that's going to happen and how many tens of billions of dollars of taxpayer money would have to be spent on that. But what's happening with Draco is... You know, there's a national security reason why uh, DARPA is developing this. They they haven't publicly talked about it. It's probably very sensitive, but they want to have this capability up there. And if there's one thing that the history shows is that the more these programs are tied to a national security imperative, especially a vital imperative, the more likely you're going to have bipartisan political support and the program is going to move forward. Because there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of difficulty in doing anything nuclear, as you know. It's complex technology. You have to have the utmost uh, regard for safety considerations and nonproliferation considerations, that sort of thing. It takes a while to develop these technologies. Uh, so, so you can't just do a crash course and all of a sudden have a nuclear rocket. You've got to do it very methodically. The good news here is we've got 70 years of experience in nuclear thermal propulsion. You know, All this information is warehoused and stored and available to uh, the the current developers. You now have new technologies uh, through AI and other computing technologies that make it a lot easier to kind of design and and, and, uh, test these things without actually building them. You have, of course, new material science discoveries over the last 10, 20, 30 years, because you've got to have a, 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 a rocket that can basically survive the rigors of operating in the cold of space And on top of that, this is something that's got to be able to turn on and off between very low and extremely high temperatures multiple times. Uh, Think about this. If you're going to do a Mars mission using a nuclear rocket, you're going to go into orbit around the Earth using chemical propulsion. You'll then launch and route Mars. You'll probably burn the engines for a couple of minutes or 10 minutes or 15 minutes, whatever, to get you your initial acceleration. Then you're going to shut that engine down probably for three months. And it's going to get really, really, really cold. And the problem is if you get to Mars and that engine won't restart, uh, you're going to do what, you know, Elon Musk, Musk's, you know, red uh, sports car did, you know, just keep on going, you know, to destination unknown. You don't want to do that with, you know, a human cargo on there. So, so you've got to have reliability. Back in the rover days, uh, when they were testing these, they had one of their rocket uh, engines, again, being tested in, in the Nevada desert. They, they started and stopped 29 times. 
So they had the reliability down really well. The problem is they've never tested it in space. So the program to do that was called Reactor In-Flight Testing, or RIFT. And they were going to launch four of these rockets in a test program. But that was canceled by the Johnson administration in 1964. So we never did the operational test on orbit for any of these uh, technologies. Now we're at that time in the show where we have to take a quick break. So we'll be right back. And you're listening to Nuclecast. The ANWA Deterrence Center and Nuclecast team joins the Exchange Monitor in inviting you to the 16th Annual Nuclear Deterrence Summit, January 31st through February 2nd at the Weston, Washington, D.C. Go to our website at anwadeter.org to register and receive a 15% discount. We look forward to seeing you there. And we're back and we're talking to Jim Howe. Of course, we're talking about space propulsion and nuclear propulsion in space. And I guess one of the questions I have is, and I don't think we've really talked about this yet, and is there a, a real substantive advantage to building nuclear rockets? I mean, is there is this the, the technology that we need as opposed to, you know, whether it's solid fuel, liquid fueled, you know, any other kind of propulsion is nuclear the one that's going to get us, you know, to Mars or beyond. Uh, what what are the actual advantages, or is this kind of just something that we thought we we want to do? If it's something that we just want to do, it won't last long as a program. It's uh, you know the the political history just shows that you've got to have kind of enduring political support, and it's got to be as bipartisan as necessary. That's one of the things that really hurt Project Prometheus back in the early 2000s, which was the uh, nuclear electric propulsion, is that it was almost all a Republican thing. The Democrats were okay with it, but when it became more controversial because of high costs and that sort of thing, it was very easy for the minority party at that point being the Democrats to just say, nah, we're going we're gonna to try to kill this thing. It just doesn't make sense. So, so here we are, though. Um, what do you get out of nuclear propulsion? Well, you get about twice... Uh, the, what's called the specific impulse uh, of, of of a chemical rocket. I mean, there are physical limits due to the laws of physics, uh, what you can do with a chemical rocket, whether it's solid or liquid fuels, doesn't matter. Uh, but with a nuclear rocket, you can about get about double you know, the efficiency of the engine. And what that allows you to do is uh, be able to uh, ha- have more flexibility for changing orbits, for changing inclinations, that sort of thing that you just don't currently enjoy. You also have the ability potentially to refuel uh, the nuclear rocket pretty easily because it all you just need to do is get it some more hydrogen you know into that tank uh, so it's not like you have to get liquid uh, oxygen and liquid hydrogen and mix them and that sort of thing like you do in a traditional uh, chemical rocket and so people are already talking about that why why don't we put one of these in orbit and then just have it, find a way to refuel it easily you could keep it up there for years and years and years because the uranium core of that is, is good for a long long time yeah and so, you know, why aren't we doing that? It's hard. It's hard and it's expensive <laughs> and it takes a while. So uh, again, we've got, you know, probably cumulatively over 20 years of real active progress on these things, 25 years maybe. And then in all the interim periods where we weren't 
developing a program for nuclear rockets. We we're doing a lot of research and development at the various national labs and uh, sometimes at the institutions of higher learning and out in industry. So there's this huge amount of information and development that's already gone on. And I think it really leads us to a good place. And, and a great example is what's happening with what's called fission surface power. This is, you know, if you're going to go to the moon and set up an outpost, you know, solar panels probably aren't going to cut it. You're going to need more power. So why not have a small nuclear reactor reactor to just kind of give 10 or 20 years worth of power to the base? And you put another one up there and, and just kind of leave the old one there in place. Um, that's something that NASA is actively pursuing along with Department of Energy uh, and others. And they're doing a great job on that. But what they were able to do is for very low cost, they were able to do a demonstration called Krusty about four years ago where they did a, a very small version of this fission surface power unit and they were able to run it successfully out in the Nevada desert. So, so they've already kind of proven the technology. They need to scale it up now. But they did that for only $20 million. And if you go back to the 1980s and 90s, we were doing a, a thing called uh, SP-100, which was a a uh, space-borne power-producing reactor, not for thrust, but just for power. We spent, you know, almost a billion dollars in then-year dollars on that and never even deployed a single operational asset. So all that work that went into SP-100 and previous programs has now kind of you know, been used by the by the current generation of reactor developers uh, to great advantage. So I think I think we're there. I think the technology is there. You know, we're at TRL five six or higher for most of these technologies. Uh, it's now just get it up there and demonstrate it. You know, refine it as you need to, and and then employ it as uh, DoD needs to do for for Draco. Yeah, it's kind of interesting because as we talk to you know we talk nuclear power. And, you know, this fourth, fifth generation reactors, they've come a long way. We know a lot more about how to build, you know, high efficiency, safe reactors than we did whenever, you know, Three Mile Island or, you know, some of these early generation reactors were built and have been, you know, operating for five decades. And so I wonder, is all of that technology and those developments going into and shaping the way we think about nuclear propulsion or are, are they operating sort of separately? And then is there, is there much in the way of private industry working? You've mentioned DARPA, you mentioned NASA. Is Elon Musk saying, Hey, you know, I saw a picture of him wearing a, Occupy Mars t-shirt and and so of course it it makes me wonder hey is is he going to be or you know one of the other space companies going to be an important player to sort of push this technology forward where are we with with those types of issues a great question and it's really important that industry play a leading role in this and quite frankly they are right now i mean uh, Lockheed Martin, for example, is working on both the uh, Draco program as well as another program that was recently announced called Jetson, which is the Joint Emergent Technology Supplying On-Orbit Nuclear High Power. That's a great, great acronym, right? And, and it's basically a very small reactor that would drive a nuclear electric propelled satellite of, or rocket ship of some sort. Uh, that's uh, a, a new program. Uh, but you've got companies like BWXT, uh, General Atomics, 
several others that are, are deeply involved in this. And BWXT goes, you know, they, they had a lot of role back in the 1980s and 1990s uh, when they were B- Babcock and Wilcox work on these sorts of things. So these are great companies that have great technologies that are, that are really deeply involved. And just, just to show how there is the overlap between what's happening in the space front and, and here terrestrially, uh, for example, BWXT is also working on an advanced uh, small modular reactor, you know, for domestic commercial power applications. So, so there's a lot of overlap uh, with these companies uh, with what they're doing terrestrially and, and for the space work as well. Now, it's that time in the show where I like to bring out Bob the Genie. And as I rub my magic lamp and Bob pops out, Bob grants all guests three wishes, but they must be wishes that deal with the topics we've been discussing today. So, Jim, wish number one. Well, that is the continued bipartisan support for what uh, DARPA and NASA are doing continues. Uh, Not necessarily because, you know, I believe this is the solution to all things that, you know, bedevil humanity. It's just a a great program that let's get it up there, uh, this Draco spacecraft, and let's try it out and see how it goes. I am 100% confident we can do it safely, efficiently, uh, at, at relatively low cost to the taxpayer compared to earlier programs based on everything we've done. So yeah, that wish would be that this bipartisan support, which is, is very welcome, quite frankly, uh, continues. Okay. So that's wish number one. Now let's move on to wish number two. Oh, that has to do with the domestic uh, and terrestrial uh, applications of these technologies. I mean, if we are serious about, you know, cleaning up our air and, and having a low carbon or no carbon future, yeah, nuclear is the only way to go. I mean, people talk about, for example, fusion. Okay, well, fusion, when it comes, will be a wonderful thing. But fission is here and fission works. So let's uh, let's keep developing that. Um, we've seen, again, a great movement, bipartisan movement towards more deployment of advanced technologies. But quite frankly, the, the Russians and Chinese are doing the same thing. And we need to beat them and become the world leader in advanced nuclear technologies like we've been for so many decades in our history. Now for, I'm going to stop on wish number two for a second. So it's been, we've faced significant bureaucratic pushback, you know, over legitimate safety concerns, but it's still to get a new reactor operating to, to, to build that reactor is incredibly, it's expensive, it's difficult, it's, it's a tremendous challenge. If you want to put nuclear rockets in space, are you going to face similar, almost overwhelming challenges or is there sort of more tolerance and less, you know, from the environmental movement, the, you know, the anti-nuclear movement, is that just, is that an area where they're not focusing or or do you have all of those same challenges? The challenges exist. And I think education is essential here. Um, If we go back in history to the uh, Cassini mission, which was a, uh, a, a probe of Saturn that was going to be launched using about 200 plus pounds of plutonium as its uh, power source for electricity. There were a lot of public protests over that. You know, 10,000 people showed up at Cape Canaveral to, uh, to protest that launch. It went fine. It was safe and everything went well. But uh, we, we completely understand the public concerns. A lot has been done, though, to kind of mitigate those. One is 
here we're not talking about plutonium. We're talking about uranium. We're also talking about not highly enriched uranium. Uh, the Draco program, for example, is looking at using what's called high assay, low enriched uranium, which is 20% or less enriched, which provides a lot more on the safety and security side of the house. So, so I think a lot of steps have been made there. And I, I do think that people, as they come to understand, you know, you can have a meaningful dialogue as long as people are willing to listen to fact and not just, uh, you know, hyperbole, I, I think you can have a, a very good conversation and some people will come over and you're seeing a lot of that in the environmental community right now, where people have come to realize that, um, you know, we're not going to get where we need to be clean air wise and, and carbon wise without nuclear and they've come to embrace it. So, so that's a good thing. Yeah. So wish number three. Oh, I don't know. Uh, world peace. Uh, but uh, yeah, that that's yeah. off the, that's off Bob's list. He's <laughs> riches, riches and world peace. Bob says no to, but if well, you had, it'll, it'll be, yeah, it'll be interesting to see how the NASA program, the Artemis program on the moon goes. I know that they were looking to uh, have humans back on the moon by the end of the decade. Um, you know, I, I always worry about the political support for that. You know, again, what we've seen historically is that if it's just a civil program, you know, it's pretty easy to start losing support. Most people don't realize that there was a lot of opposition to the Apollo program, you know, landing people on the moon. Yeah, there was I a lot of concern. That. Oh, yeah. It was uh, almost like 40 percent of the population was against it just for budgetary reasons. They wanted the money spelt, spent here on Earth. And um, and even as Neil Armstrong was taking the, the first steps on the moon, you know, NASA's budget had already gone down like 15 or 20 percent and it was headed for a very steep decline over the next few years. So it's one of those things where the public, you know, if they're going to embrace a Mars mission, uh, uh, we're not there yet. Uh, you know, that, that's going to be tens of billions of dollars. So you're going to have to develop all these technologies to get there. It's a great aspirational goal. You know, we as an exploring species, we love to go out and find new things and do that. But but I don't think the public's there yet. It's going to take a lot of embracing of these technologies uh, for, for any such program to move forward. Yeah. So if if you were to leave the listeners with a sort of a takeaway message, what is that takeaway message? The use of nuclear technology in space, both for power, for propulsion, it really represents a kind of a brave new world of exploration where you can do things orders of magnitude more important than we've been able to do using you know traditional chemical propulsion. It comes at a cost in technology development, in you know just paying for that development and time. Uh, and whether or not people are willing to put up with that is is really a political question, really, and a social question. But the benefits, if uh, you're into space exploration, if you're into the defense aspects of this, uh, where it could be really a vital a vital need, well, this is these are great technologies to explore. I, I do think they have a lot of future up there. You know, if you look at our nuclear navy and the incredible track record of safety that they've got over the last you know seventy years, uh, you can do that in space. You just got to have the high standards of uh, accountability and performance that the nuclear Navy has had. All right, Jim Howe, thanks for joining us on this episode of NucleCast. My pleasure. Thanks, Adam. Appreciate it. And thanks to you, the listeners, and we'll see you next time. Good conversation with Jim Howe. Uh, nuclear propulsion and nuclear power in space is not a topic I think about all that often. So it was good to, you know, sort of get a lay of the land from from Jim and sort of know where, where we've been, where we are, 
where we're going. So I, I don't know about you, but I found the discussion really interesting and, and sort of informative. And it it puts the idea of propulsion and power in space, nuclear, uh, sort of up in my things to think about list, whereas I hadn't really given it much thought uh, before. So that was a, was a good conversation. I enjoyed it. This has been a production of the Anwar Deterrence Center, a 501c3 that seeks to educate the key decision makers, stakeholders, and the public to ensure a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrent. Our executive producer is Kimberly Chanton, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Trumpel. Help us grow our followers by sharing it and follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Nuclear.